Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. In this episode, I interview Angela Solfaro-Menconi. Angela is a trained cultural anthropologist with areas of interest including poverty and homelessness, gender and sexuality, and Chicana feminism. Angela earned her PhD and she is self-diagnosed with ADHD. She lives with her family in Phoenix, Arizona, where she is the headmistress at an exclusive experimental interest-based learning academy. Her family practices unschooling. She strongly supports autistic self-advocacy and the neurodiversity movement. And on the weekends, Angela works as a freelance content writer and she crafts soap to promote zero waste living. We talk about the ways in which her ADHD presented itself throughout her childhood and how she found her way in postgraduate academia after getting mostly C's in high school and experiencing a pretty dismal freshman year in college. I thought we had a great chat and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay. Hello, Angela. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited. Full disclosure for listeners, I do, when I'm when I'm inviting somebody to be on the podcast, I send them a, some questions and I just was really struck. I love some of your answers and I want to get to talking about them and your fascinating history, your, your academic history as a trained cultural anthropologist. Uh, but first, I want to find out about your diagnosis, how you sort of first suspected you had ADHD and kind of what led up to your getting a diagnosis. Sure. Well, I'll be upfront that I'm one of those um, self-diagnosed ADHDers. Um, I and think how- most of us start out that way. For exactly. Sure. <laughs> exactly. You have a suspicion and then you go and get verified. Um, so I have a son who is six years old now, and when he was two and a half, he was diagnosed with autism. And autism is largely an inherited trait. And so my husband and I both started doing a lot of self-reflection, thinking, you know, perhaps we could be autistic. So I did a lot of reading. I joined a lot of Ask an Autistic groups on Facebook um, and other um, social media platforms. I started following actually autistic hashtag on Twitter. And I realized I was not autistic. (laughs) The women that were talking about growing up autistic, um, their stories just really did not resonate with me. However, when I, you know, I'm going through all this research about autism, I'm looking at co-occurring conditions. And one of them is ADHD. And when I would read about ADHD, I mean, just the blinking lights were going off in my head, like, oh my goodness, this is, these are my people. This is what is me. I thought everybody experienced the world in this way, but now I'm finding out that no, this is, uh, you know, something entirely different. So you're like, and I was just having a deep dive into autism. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I wasn't, and you know, of course we have our deep dives just like autistic people do where, you know, we just get hyper-focused on these different subjects. Um, sometimes not when we even want to, it, they, they kind of choose us. It feels like, yeah. So it really resonated with me, all the, um, things that women who had self-diagnosed or had a, you know, an adult diagnosis of ADHD and many of them had children who had been diagnosed or children who had been diagnosed with autism, um, which I found fascinating because of course we, we got passed over 
when we were girls, right? We didn't, uh, we didn't set off any alarms in teachers or parents' brains. So, you know, we weren't, we weren't given our diagnosis back then. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so how long ago were you diagnosed? Um, self-diagnosis would have happened probably about two years ago, I would say, is when I really kind of accepted that this is probably, oh, well, actually, I, I wouldn't even call it accepted that I have an ADHD brain. I embraced having an ADHD brain and realized yeah. that I wasn't lazy, that I wasn't a morally flawed person, that I wasn't, um, and I, please excuse this pejorative, I was not crazy, which is what I had always thought. I had always right. told people, you know, and again, excuse the use of the term crazy. I know that, you know, we're, we're trying to move away from that term. But at the time when I was 20, you know, 20 years ago, I thought, I'm crazy. No one's ever going to love me. I'm an unlovable person. And uh, I'm too erratic. You know, basically, when I, when I said the C word, what I really meant was, I'm erratic and I'm impulsive. And um, that's not always a fun thing to have in a romantic partner or even a friend, right? <laughs> you don't want someone who's going to um, take the night, uh, the fun night off that you're having uh, and uh, get arrested or <laughs> get in trouble or get kicked out of a bar. And yet I was acting very impulsively all the time. Right. I think, I think it's, you know, we tend to use that term, but I think also what it means is sort of feeling like a square peg in a round hole. Yes. And feeling so misunderstood, not only by the people around you, but also by yourself. And so I think, you know, as I've been talking to other women and learning so much more about this feeling of just absolute relief and overwhelm of feeling like accepted, you know, like I found my people because we, we do, we, one thing we have in common is that we spend our whole lives feeling just other and not really knowing why or what to do with that feeling. Absolutely. Now, what are looking back in on your life, because that's another thing I think we tend to do once it, we realize that this is our neurodivergence, we start to, I know for me, like I just went back and looked over everything in my life with this new lens mm -hmm. and fell it, feeling just like I had all these new, this new insight into how I operated, especially when it came to academics and in, in middle school and high school. Mm. So what are some things looking back in your past where you say, Oh my God, of course that was ADHD. <laughs> right. So uh, I, I only know this because I have an older brother and um, he tells me that previous to school age, so previous to uh, kindergarten, I basically fit the hyperactivity bill. I would get really, really riled up and excited about things and the adults and him would think, calm down, sit down, sit your body down, stop moving your body. Now, by the time I was in kindergarten, I had kind of gotten a hold of that, right? I, I'm, I'm that part of the, of the, cause I believe, I believe ADHD is also a spectrum in the way that autism is in, um, handling different situations, uh, differently depending on, you know, lack of sleep or if you've eaten enough that day, if you are capable of handling a situation, you can, if you're incapable in that moment, you're not going to handle it well. So I had gathered my faculties by the time I was five or six to learn how to sit in a seat. However, my hyperactivity went up into my brain. So teachers talking at the front of the room, and I'm thinking about 50 different things going on, the colors in the room, what that boy said to me at recess, 
um, what I wanted to do after school, that funny television show I saw the night before. Ooh, what was I going to eat for lunch that day? You know, and then the teacher says, Angie, what was the answer to that? And I think, uh, what are we talking about? Are we in spelling? Are we in math? What's happening right now? And usually, um, you know, when I was younger, I couldn't get it together to get it, give an answer. So maybe I'd say something funny to kind of like ease the tension in the room. But as I got older, I was able to kind of half listen enough so that I could um, say something related to the subject we were talking about. So the teacher would kind of think, well, all right, maybe she's not paying attention all that. She's, she's a daydreamer. But she's here enough that, you know, I'm not, she's not going to get in trouble. Um, I was not a great student, but I was not a poor student either. Again, I did just enough to get by um, all throughout grade school. And I was extremely bored in grade school. Um, It felt to me as if we were learning the same things year after year. Oh, we already covered that. Or, you know, a teacher would teach something. And I happened to be paying attention and I would get it in the first, in the first instruction period. And so the next day the teacher would go over the subject again and I'd think, what are we doing this for? We just covered this yesterday. Let's move on to the next thing. Uh, um, so, you know, at that point I'm like wanting to have this novelty in my education um, that, you know, in elementary school you don't get. You have, it's repetitive, right? Um, never really liked homework from as early as homework started being uh, assigned, I just didn't do it. I just thought, why do I need to practice this? You taught me this in school. Why do I have to take it home and practice again? And I had parents who were really more interested in me being a good person than in being a stellar student, which to many people probably sounds like a dream, right? (laughs) But at the same time, I had really poor grades because of it. So I didn't excel as a student. I also had, again, an older brother who had tested as gifted. So in my family, he was the smart one. So I didn't have to perform as the smart one. He was the smart one. Coincidentally, a teacher had also suggested that he be tested um, for autism to see if he was on the spectrum. And uh, that testing never happened. But I find that fascinating now that ADHD and autism are so highly correlated in families and mm-hmm. here is my brother suspected of perhaps being on the spectrum. Um, that testing never happened, though, so we don't know. Um, when I went into high school, again, just continuing with the doing just enough to get by, half listening in class, half doing the reading. You know, I'd find myself, I'm, I'm an avid reader. I was a voracious reader as a child and as a young adult, but um when it came to schoolwork, I'd have to read that paragraph again and again and again and again um, because I realized I wasn't, I was reading it, but I wasn't paying attention to it. So I wasn't learning anything. Um, but I would, I would glean just enough from the reading, glean just enough from that day's lesson to get an A on the test. But then I wouldn't do any homework. So it would average out to a C. So I was a C student all through high school. In fact, I barely even graduated high school. (laughs) Um, I do believe my pre-calculus teacher bumped up my grade just enough so that I could graduate. I went from an F to a D so that I could, so I could walk, but I had very high SAT scores and that enabled me to go directly to university. Um, And when I got to university, a 
first thing I remember was I didn't find it as hard as I had found high school. I, um, I, wait, are you Canadian? I'm not. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, is that, is Sorry that to interject. Well, it's just, I'm so used to pe- people using the term college and, um, oh. so that's all. Well, maybe because I went to, uh, uh, graduate school and I went to graduate okay. school in Washington state and there were a few Canadians in my in my yeah, we call it university, and I'm I'm Canadian. We call it university, and so oh, every okay. time I, I always sort of pause and think like, what should I call it when I'm speaking to somebody in the U.S.? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, I I refer to it as university. I think I probably think of community college more as college, but um, Say, yeah, yeah. So um, I I found university work to be uh, I would say on the whole easier, but again, I wasn't doing assignments. And I skipped class quite a bit because of, you know, this risk taking that I had and this um, doing just enough to get by attitude because I wasn't smart. Right. I was I had been kind of whether I told myself or others told me your brother's the smart one. You're, you know, average. So I did just enough to get by. Um, And I definitely think that that is somehow related to my ADHD. Um, although I, you know, I know that there are a lot of women, especially who uh, have an ADHD brain that say, you know, they were type A students, right? Type, everything has to be perfect. They were perfectionists. Um, and I think I am a perfectionist, but I felt that I couldn't do something perfectly. So I'm not going to try to do it. Yes. Um, yes. So when I, I remember one story of this, and this would get me in trouble in elementary school. In high school, I could kind of talk my way out of it and explain myself better. But in elementary school, I would get in trouble a lot because I didn't have the vocabulary to explain myself. And I came across as um, impertinent <laughs> constantly. I see that now. But at the time, I kept thinking, why am I always in trouble? Um, in fifth grade, my teacher used to do like a where in the world is Carmen San Diego type activity. And she would um, post the outline of a country and put it on the wall and then have a, a globe next to it and a map of the world next to it. And then we were that week by Friday, we're supposed to write on a little slip of paper, which country it was. And I could never figure out which one it was, you know, she wasn't picking like the easy countries. It was like these tiny little countries. Um, and I could never find it. And I probably just didn't have the patience to go through and stand there in front of the map trying to find that shape. Um, and it wasn't that I was bad at geography either. I just, I felt like I'm not ever going to get this. Um, I don't even want to try. So I kept a week after week just writing my name and then writing Portugal. Angela, <laughs> Portugal. Angela, <laughs> Portugal. And thinking, you know, hey, I'm, I'm doing the assignment, you know, it, it, so, and it was for extra credit too. It wasn't really even for like actual points that I needed, but I um, did that. And then, you know, one day she pulled me aside before recess and she said, why do you keep writing Portugal? You know, this isn't Portugal. She's so mad at me. <laughs> and I, and I said, well, I just, I'm not ever going to get it. So I don't want to even try. And she I mean, it looked like her face turned beet red. She was just so upset with me. And it, you know, looking back, it probably was because here was a 10-year-old girl just not wanting to even try. <laughs> um, it's a pretty easy assignment. And I think that that kind of stubbornness can also be an ADHD trait. And 
it exemplifies a lot of my behavior as a child. <laughs> That's a great story, yes, because it's it's sort of viewed by your teacher as this indolence, but also really, you know, defiant. Right. <laughs> like you're gaming the system. And I think I think ADHDers love to game the system. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like you and I had a very similar experience with university in that I also spent my first year really doing the bare minimum and and stopped going to classes because I was partying so much. Mm -hmm. Because for me, I think social acceptance and just the transition and, um, you know, if there was anybody who was willing to party with me, I would find that person and party with, you know, like I, I just felt like my focus was on feeling accepted socially. And as a result, I, I stopped going to classes and it amazes me that I passed any of them, but I failed <laughs> enough classes in my first year that I dropped out because I just thought, I, you know, I felt so guilty. I was spending my parents' tuition. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I just felt, you know, like this was not for me. And so I just dropped out after my first year. And when I went back, I, I took a year off to kind of find myself and travel. And, and when I went back, I ended up, um, you know, really deciding that, you know, if I was going to do this, I was going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and right. sit in the front row center of every class and mm -hmm. attend every lecture. And I ended up on the Dean's list for every semester after that. And so I think, you know, it's when you, when we talk about ADHD students who do well in class, I think it's really just like finding that motivation Absolutely. and challenging yourself. And if you can't find that motivation, which is difficult, or if it's just not your motivation at the moment, then mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's an all or nothing I like how you explain that. And I think I'm going to steal it that I was more focused on social interaction because that's absolutely true for me. Um, I ended my freshman year of, of university at, with a 1.5 GPA. Um, so I was on academic probation for the next several years trying to dig my way out of that hole. Um, and at the time, Arizona State University tuition was very inexpensive. I had actually gone to private school um, all throughout elementary and high school. And the tuition for the university was cheaper than my high school had been. So I was able to pay for that. And I worked and had, uh, had some help from my family with that. But I stayed in school. It took me five and a half years to get my first BA. Now, because of my ADHD and my several interests that I had, I... Um, had a double minor, which is odd, right? Who has a double minor? Why not just make that into a double major? You're taking the same amount of classes, but I didn't do that. I went ahead and um, had a double minor. And so that also added some time. Um, then I took some time off from school and I started working. I fell into a job. Um, what was I doing? Oh, I was a barista. I fell into a job. I met, I had a friend and I was a barista for a little while, but I knew that I wanted to go back to school. I really did enjoy school, even though I was just doing barely enough to get by. And so one day I went down to the university and I spoke with an academic advisor and they said, well, you know, you can get another BA. You have your two uh, minors, minor degrees. You can turn one of those into a major and then just take 
extra classes. So one of my minors was religious studies and one of my minors was women's studies. I needed 11 classes to finish a women's studies degree and I needed 13 classes to do a religious studies. So gaming the system, of course I chose women's studies, two less classes, got that BA in one year. And as you stated, I was on the Dean's list that time around. I had chosen to go back. I was going to really, really try hard in these classes. And I had already dug myself out of that hole. You know, it took five years, but I dug myself out of that hole, that academic hole I had created my freshman year of partying. And I knew how to be a good student by that time. As I was graduating with that second BA, one of my, um, one of my professors said to me, you know, Angela, that last presentation you gave was really great. And I want you to know that I think that you have the capacity to go to graduate school. Why are you getting another BA? And I, again, I am not smart. This is what my thinking at the time. I'm not smart. I can't go to graduate schools. Graduate schools for smart people. And uh, her telling me that I had the capacity to, to be a professor, it, it just blew my mind. And I thought, here is someone who I find highly educated and, and intelligent telling me, you can be too. You are intelligent. And uh, that meant a lot to me. So I started, I started the application process for graduate school at that point. And you went on and earned your doctorate? I did. Mm-hmm. So was that a pretty straight and narrow path from then on? Not really. I, you know, it took another, after that earning that second BA, it took another couple years. I, I, again, I fell in, fell into another job. So then I worked for a city council member at the city of Phoenix for a couple years. I was uh, one of her assistants. Um, and while I was doing that, um, and kind of putting everything, all everything into that job, you know, just really trying to, do well at that job and be a professional person. This is in my late twenties. Um, I again acquired more skills to go to graduate school. So um, listening skills and learning how to be in a city council meeting and take notes that were really important to my job, right? It was really important that I paid attention to everything and, and got details, right? Um, so I started this system where I was I had different colored gel pens and I would sit there and I, and as long as I was taking notes and changing the color of the pen every time, I realized that I was actually learning what was going on in these meetings. So it took me to my my late twenties to realize how to study. I mean, no one had ever taught me how to do that, how to Mm -hmm. work my brain to actually learn something. So Um, then I applied to several different universities and, um, I got, I got into one, I got into three and one of them offered me funding. So that's the one I went to. Um, that's funny. You just reminded me of the four color pen and how I could not have gotten through. (laughs) I could not have gotten through university without the four color pen. Um, and yes, and, and how taking notes really, I think I'm just making this connection now, so I'm not sure how formed it is, but I, you know, I think the idea of taking notes in class um, as a way of helping you focus was sort of, you know, an, an older version of any kind of like fidget cube or, you know, mm-hmm. using the writing aspect as a stimulant to help you listen to what yeah. is being said. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I had a really hard time not taking notes word for word. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
because I always sort of felt like I, you know, I'm going to put, I'm going to write this down now and then I'm going to have to go back and really process it later. And so I used to take notes just, you know, I would try to write down everything the professor was saying and I would get really frustrated if I fell behind. And so then I stopped taking notes entirely and would just watch the professor. And I don't know, for some reason that helped me a lot. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I know that when I taught classes um, while I was in graduate school, I wasn't a professor that relied on PowerPoints and my students didn't like it at first. I remember every semester, I only taught two semesters, but every, both semesters, my students complained that first couple weeks, you know, those first couple weeks, can you use more PowerPoints? Can you email into to us? But I knew why they were doing it. It's because they, that way they wouldn't have to pay attention during class. They could uh, look at the PowerPoints later and um, kind of write their notes after class. And I told them, no, I want, I really want you to engage with me. I want you to listen to me. And if something is important, if a term is important, I'll write it on the board. So I was very old fashioned. Um, because of course, when I was in university, nobody even had laptops. We're talking the year 2000. There was no, <laughs> you didn't bring a laptop to school. If someone had a laptop, it would be as thick as a brick and uh, probably make a lot of whirring noises. <laughs> so um, everybody had notebooks, you know, uh, a couple kids maybe had like a Palm Pilot for some quick notes, but that's it. That's it. So I was very old fashioned. They didn't like that. But then, you know, by the end of the semester, people would say, oh no, I really got a lot out of your class because I felt like we were really engaging in conversation. I wasn't just biding my time until it was over waiting for the PowerPoints to, to do my studying. I don't know. I think that there is something to, you know, we all have those learning styles of uh, audio or, you know, writing or uh, visual, you know, all of that kind of thing. And I, th I think for me, it's a amalgam of all of them. I need to have an experiential learning experience, but I also need to um, be able to see and read and, and write. And I also need to hear. So it's, it's kind of all of the above. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids six through 18. With GoHenry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their GoHenry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. So you earned your PhD as a cultural anthropologist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What does that entail besides teaching? Sure. Um, so cultural anthropologists generally do continue to do research. You'll, you know, you work as a professor at a university. And anthropology is a four-field practice. Um, it encompasses uh, human language, so linguistics, human biology, biological anthropology, which... Um, encompasses things like primatology, like, you know, Jane Goodall, um, and also um, forensic anthropology, like bones, like television show bones. She was a forensic anthropologist. 
Um, and then there is cultural anthropology, which, which I do, which has to do, deal with um, living human populations currently, different societies and cultures, and um, the history. So that would be archaeology. Archaeology is a subfield of, of anthropology. So taking all that four-field approach, um, we're trying to have a narrative about what it means to be human. Um, over time and space. And what that means is <laughs> you get to talk to really cool people and travel to really cool places and, and get to, you know, have really cool experiences and learn about other cultures and other people and what people used to do and what people do now and what people say they do, but what people actually do. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've loved it. Um, I was a, my undergraduate degree was also in anthropology when I was 17 years old, um, a high school guidance counselor pulled me in and said, Angela, you know, you seem disinterested in school. You know, your grades don't really reflect. We think you're a pretty creative and intelligent young lady, but like your grades aren't showing it. What, what is your interest? I don't know. Well, you got to like something. What do you like? I like to watch the Discovery Channel and talk on the phone to my friends. <laughs> well, what do you watch on the Discovery Channel? And I, at the time, was just watching all these archaeology shows. So he said, well, why don't you look into archaeology? And so I did. So I you know, went to the library and checked out a book and thought, hey, this is actually really cool. So at first, I wanted to be an archaeologist. But being that I'm from Arizona and it's 120 degrees in the shade in the summertime, I thought, I am not standing in an 8 by 8 <laughs> square in the ground uh, in the middle of summer. It now, it didn't occur to me that I could have gone to university somewhere else where it was cooler in the summer. But, you know, at the time I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So I switched pretty early on to um, cultural anthropology at that point. Um, so, yeah, wanting to be an anthropologist was something that I had had since I was 17 years old. <laughs> that was my idea. And I actually did it which is, to me, pretty amazing. That's great. It does feel very much in line with the ADHD brain as well, I find. Yes. When I, you know, looking back at my career as a journalist now through an ADHD lens, I think, oh, of course, like it makes so much sense. I loved deadlines. I loved interviewing people and finding, you know, I just loved the whole process of, of how we learn about ourselves through interviewing others or reading other stories and, and how much I love one-on-one -on -one conversations as opposed to loud group environments. And, mm -hmm. um, and then also the, you know, caffeine and nicotine culture sure. <laughs> of, you know, being that hard rolled up shirt sleeves journalist. And then as soon as you hit deadline, you start drinking and um, everything about it just appealed to me so much. And now I look back and I'm like, Oh yeah. It all makes sense. <laughs> and plus, you know, when you're a writer, you get to you you get to know a little bit about every topic, right? And the, how great is that for an ADHD yeah. brain? Like uh, that, and that's why I really liked the four fields of anthropology because there was a never-ending stream of data and information that I could pull from. Right? It was all facets of what it means to be human. There's even like psychological anthropology there's even like business anthropology so it was just it was such a wide school of thought that I I really it really resonated with me and now one of the answers you gave when I, I asked the question what is something that's changed the most for you since your diagnosis and I just mm -hmm. wanted to talk about this answer you gave where you said 
now I give myself so much more respect for having overcome mm-hmm. difficulties. And I think that that is so important in our ADHD journey. I, you know, one thing when I went to my doctor and she kind of confirmed for me this diagnosis and, and I was, she was talking about asking me questions about ways in which my hyperactivity presents itself. And I was talking about ways in which I've come up with hacks over the last, mm-hmm. you know, 45 years <laughs> to live in this world. And, and she just kept talking about how incredibly hardworking I was mm-hmm. to be coming up, you know, figuring out how I work best and what works best and how I kind of have been able to automate my life in a way to to make up for these deficiencies. And I just remember being so moved because I was like, I don't think I've ever been called hardworking by anyone in my life. (laughs) My whole narrative has always been about being lazy or feeling lazy and unmotivated. And so I just loved the fact that you're able to make that connection too and say like, I have so much respect for how I have been able to intuitively overcome some of my own difficulties throughout life. And I think it's just so important to recognize what, hard workers we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the create the creativity that we have to get through difficult times. Um so we've grown up thinking that we're lazy. For me it was I was morally deficient in some way. Like it was I it was bad I was bad. I was a bad person because I couldn't keep my room clean. I was bad because um I wasn't paying attention in class. Good Good kids paid attention in class. Good kids tried hard on their work and I didn't and I couldn't find the motivation to do it. But I, again, it took a long time, but I figured out how to be that good student, right? I figured out Mm -hmm. how to um, uh, learn for my brain, you know, getting my brain to actually hold on to information. And I do have, a, I'm a much more gentle with myself than I used to be. Once I realized like, no, 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 it's your neurology that's doing this. It's not an excuse. It is not an excuse. It is an explanation. It is a diagnosis, right? Um, so, oh gosh, it was like a big sigh of relief when it all kind of hit me. And without outing other people, I found out recently that there's other people uh, in, in my family that have an ADHD diagnosis. I have a very good um, childhood friend who is now a physician. She's a, um, she's a doctor. We're all terribly proud of her. And she and I were speaking the other day on the phone and I told her kind of casually about my self-diagnosis. And she said, you know, she couldn't speak about me particularly. She's like, I'm not in your brain and I'm not doing a diagnosis on you, but like, you're very clever. And clever people can hide it. So, you know, the same kind of thing. You are creative and you're clever and you figure out how to get by in the world um, and how to make up for your perceived deficiencies. Um, Oh, shoot. I just had a thought and it escaped me. That happens to me (laughs) constantly. Constantly. (laughs) I'm like, maybe I should edit that out or maybe I should leave that in. I'm not sure yet. Uh, Is your partner, do you think your partner has ADHD? Uh, Possibly. We were, when our son was diagnosed, um, the the neurologist that did, the uh, neuropsychologist, excuse me, that did it, was, you know, giving us the diagnosis in her office. And she said, you know, there's a lot of she used the term comorbidities. I don't really like that. I like co-occurring, but whatever. Comorbidities with autism. 
and one of them is ADHD. And here's a couple like just quick little things about ADHD. You might notice that with your son too, but he's so young that, you know, it might not pop up yet. Um, and my husband said, oh no, that's me. That's me. <laughs> um, so maybe he also feels he could possibly be on the autism spectrum. And I, I would, if I got a say in that, I would say yes, <laughs> but you know, it's not up to me. that's just helpful. I think, I think it's been great for our relationship because again, I give him grace and patience now much more than I used to, because now I understand that, you know, to communicate, it just has to be done in a certain way. And, you know, to, to get things done, the steps have to be made in a certain way. So all the patience that we have for our son, we're actually giving to each other as well. Yes. I find, you know, it's, I think it's this idea that, you know, this is a puzzle. There is a solution. We just have to figure out the best path to that solution, Mm -hmm. which seems, I think, obvious to perhaps neurotypical people who have lived their life this whole way. But this is, I think this is something that this awareness of ADHD has brought to me, to my attention or, you know, I now sort of approach ideas or topics or tasks now with this idea of like, okay, this is doable. Mm-hmm. If I feel like it's not doable, I just haven't figured out the the way to get there yet. Yes. And so I think that brings in what you were saying about patience and grace and, you know, really instead of sort of just emotionally falling on the ground in a heap and thinking there's no way I can do this, really it's brought a lot more kind of emotional balance, just yes. the awareness alone. Yeah. And it's something as simple as, you know, for my son, you know, I can say to him, okay, you can't do this now. You don't have this skill yet, but with practice you will, right? It's something that parents say all the time to their kids, but I never said it to myself. To myself, it was, you can't do this. You're terrible at this. This is just like, it's, you're never going to do it, <laughs> you know? Um, but now I can say, okay, I can't keep my house clean to save my life. I <laughs> just, I don't, have whatever it takes to keep a tidy house. I don't have it, but you know what? I will. I'm going to figure out a system. I don't know what it's going to be yet. I'm going to figure out a system. And if I can't, well, then I'm going to hire a nice person to come and do it for me (laughs) because why go on disliking myself, right? No, I'm not going to do that anymore. Preach. <laughs> the housekeeping one really hits home. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I mean, but anecdotally, my grandmother cleaned houses. That's what she did on the side for, you know, some extra money. And so I always felt guilty thinking about, you know, I couldn't keep my house clean. She kept several people's houses clean and her own. And yet I couldn't even keep my room clean, let alone an entire house. Um, but now I think, no, wait she made money to feed her family by cleaning people's houses that couldn't get it done. So I'm going to do that for somebody else. You know, this is an economy. Let's, let's keep the economy going. There's no shame in hiring somebody else to do it because they don't feel shame about the work. Well, that's a great segue into talking about this business that you have started, which is relatively new, correct? Yes. It's about three weeks old. (laughs) Oh, okay. So very new. It's, I love the name. I want you to tell me where the name comes from and what the significance is of written culture. Tell me a bit about your business. And, um, since this is a new business for you, how are you avoiding decision overwhelm? Yeah. So, um, the business is called uh, written culture and it is a handmade soap company. Um, very different from 
teaching anthropology at a university level. <laughs> but um, I homeschool my children and I needed a business that I could do from home. Um, and soap was perfect. I, it took a long time for me to decide on soap. Uh, and I did a lot of research into different types of businesses I could do. I knew that I wanted to work for myself. I didn't want to do um, any kind of like direct sales. Um, I wanted to, you know, have a job that I could do on nights and weekends. And soaping is perfect for that. I also considered learning coding, but that didn't that didn't work for my schedule. Um, so instead, I'm, I'm doing the soap business. And the way I came up with the name was actually, uh, I have always had a little side gig, kind of like my grandmother, right? I've always had something that I used to get a little bit of spending cash on the side um, as a stay-at-home mom. And um, I am a, um, oh gosh, why can I think of the word right now? It has left my brain. Oh, I'm a freelance writer. I'm a freelance uh, web content creator. Uh, for a company in Las Vegas. I'm part of their content writing team. And so I've learned a lot about internet marketing from that, which has been invaluable for starting a um, mainly e-commerce site. Um, but, and I get paid through PayPal from that business. They, they like to use PayPal. And so um, when you set up a, a PayPal business account, they ask if you want to have a name for your company. And so kind of cheekily and like just quickly, I said written culture, right? Because I'm a cultural anthropologist. I have a PhD. So this is my this is my business name. And I didn't think about it again for a couple of years. And then when I decided to start the soap company, I thought, well, why change the name? It's already, it's already on my PayPal account. That's going to be the name for my company. And it was also a... Uh, had, the name doesn't really make you think of soap, which I like because that means it can literally be anything. If I get tired of making soap, which I, I'm not even close yet to being tired of, but as an ADHD or you have to have a backup plan, <laughs> um, I can change what the business focus is. You know, I can become a dropship company or um, actually, to be honest, I have already been toying with the idea of starting a zero waste store, like actual physical store because the city of Phoenix does not have one and it's the sixth largest city in the United States and it does not have a dedicated zero waste, low waste store for that community. So I've already started thinking about the next big <laughs> business venture, even though this one's only been open for three weeks. Of course, <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yeah. When I, I, you know, I was diagnosed and I think 48 hours later decided I was going to have a podcast and buy the URL <laughs> of Women in ADHD. And yeah, everything <laughs> happens like, so fast. I know, right? You just have like, <laughs> a sense of urgency yeah. um, and, and fascination and just that's that drive and all of it. I love yeah. it. Well, the name fits. I think it's really great. But yeah, when I started Worth It with Katie, I was actually a Weight Watchers leader and I loved the name Worth It with Katie, and it stayed with me even though my business has completely transformed to anti diet, intuitive eating, health coaching. Love it. Love it. I'm just, that's my new deep dive interest right now is intuitive eating. I just saw that, oh, that on yeah. your website. I love it. Yeah, but you know, Worth It, I was like, 
Well, yeah, worth it. Things are things that are worth it to you transform throughout your life. So the name has stuck, even though my business has done a, a 180. Yeah. So actually, I think that could be a tip from both of us to any listeners. If you're thinking of starting a business and you are in, you have an ADHD ADHD brain like us, pick a name that can mean many different things. Right? <laughs> so you get fired of your business, you just change what your business is. So I can go back to full-time writing. I can um, start selling, you know, other people's products. I can just be a wholesale business. You know, I, I love that about the name. It's not, you know, a City of Phoenix soap company or something like that. <laughs> well, and I think that's another thing too with my own business. And I, it's probably common with a lot of ADHD entrepreneurs, which is, I need to pivot often mm-hmm. uh, because of something that I'm, you know, I, I tend to be passionate about things and then my business reflects what I'm passionate about. The problem is I tend to also then become incredibly passionate about something else and lose interest in the first thing completely. And so right. my business needs to pivot over and over and over again. And I used to look at that as a failure and think, oh, I'm so scatterbrained and I need to have a brand that people can trust. And I've sort of just realized that that's not capable, you know, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. That what my strength is, is is growth and change and evolution on a very rapid scale. And I love that. And I, I feel like a few years ago, everyone is complaining about the gig economy and how, you know, you have to have all these different income streams. And I remember thinking, that sounds awesome. <laughs> if you're tired of one thing, you move on to the next thing and focus on that for a while. And then when that gets boring, you go to the First thing again, you know, like to me, that sounds great. So I'm trying to do that with this business. So I'm still continued to, as a freelance writer, um, I have a blog uh, connected to my account. So I'm writing about uh, zero and low waste living, which is another fascination of mine and my husband's. Um, So just kind of like uh, purging our home of plastic, which we are not perfect at. This is an ongoing evolution. We have two children, our house is full of plastic. So I'm just going to throw that out there, but we are trying. That's, that's the game, right? We are trying to reduce our, our carbon footprint and the amount of plastics that we use. I think that's amazing. They never go away. <laughs> so, um, so trying to change our, our practices, that's, that's the goal, change your behavior. I also love to knit and sew. And so I've been putting some of my knit work up on the site. I would never open a knitwear company. It takes too long for me to knit, but I can knit a few things that can be used in accompaniment with the soaps. And um, I'm also trying to think of some other sewing, some things I can sew, some items that might be helpful to people that I can also put up on the website. So again, I'm just trying to think of all the different ways that I can um, contribute to this business and, and continue to make it grow. The holders, the hand knit soap holders mm-hmm. for the dish soap, bar soap, I mm-hmm. think is a brilliant marriage. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about zero waste living. If how, where would somebody even begin to start researching that? Sure. And there's, you know, there's actually a lot of writing about it on my, on my, uh, um, my website, my uh, blog does not even try and reinvent the wheel. There's tons of writing and literature on zero waste. There's a lot of uh, anti-zero waste too. People who say, no matter what you do, you still live in a country that creates the most waste in the world. And so uh, nothing you do will help that. 
And that very well may be true, but that sounds so defeatist to me. And it's just antithetical to how I live my life. I think we all can try to reduce waste in our lives. Um, and what it really means, no one is zero waste, okay? It's really a misnomer as so many things are. You cannot be zero waste um, because we are all part of society and we all contribute to making waste and filling the landfill. But what zero and low waste people try to do is to divert as much as we can from the landfill. So that includes recycling. If your municipality even offers it anymore, a lot of places don't. Um, that includes not buying things in plastic. Single use plastic is like the number one, just uh, largest uh, uh, contributor to landfill, um, landfilling, I guess you'd call it, uh, in, in the nation. Um, so that's the plastic fork that you get at lunchtime that you don't really need, do you? You can bring a fork. People used to do that. Uh, a lot of people have switched to like, I like to call them canteens, but people are using, you know, uh, their take around water bottle that started about 20 years ago. I think that's been great. Yet there's still people who insist on buying plastic. Now I'm not entirely anti-plastic. We need plastics for like the medical field. You know, I don't want to reuse somebody else's uh, syringe and tubing when I go to get a, a surgery done. I don't want to do that. Uh, so plastics can be really wonderful, but I don't need to get a plastic straw and I don't need to get um, a cup with a lid at a fast food place every day. I just don't. I don't need to purchase things like shampoo in bottles because now a lot of companies, and I'm hoping to roll out one next year, produce solid shampoo bars and solid conditioning bars and solid lotion bars. So I don't need to have more plastic bottles that are just going to clutter my counter and also not necessarily be recycled by my municipality. And recycling actually takes a lot of energy too. So it takes a lot of energy to make the plastic, takes a lot of energy to uh, reuse the plastic. And in the end, the plastic never really goes away. So, you know, it's not, it's not great. Uh, we try to reduce our plastic in every day. And I didn't start off in my relationship with my husband being anti-plastic. In fact, when I moved in with him, he was the one that started it. He said, let's not ever buy Tupperware. So we didn't. Um, we switched to all glass and uh, we've kind of, in any, in any way that we can be low waste, we are. Um, it's been really hard during the pandemic uh, as it has been for a lot of people, because, you know, suddenly grocery stores wouldn't allow us to bring our canvas bags to do grocery shopping. We had to get these plastic bags and they didn't have paper, right? So when we're able to get paper, we get paper. When they allow us to use our canvas bags, we do. And we, we try to choose paper, metal, um, any alternative to plastic that we can. I love it. I think it's great. And I think you brought up such a great point in this, I, this nation divided this idea uh, that, well, if it, it's not going to do enough, so why mm -hmm. bother? Or right. there are so many people out there who are doing worse than I am, so why bother? Mm -hmm. And bar shampoo, like, why haven't we been doing that all along? It seems so obvious. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> I remember um, I used to watch a lot of musicals and uh, a lot of documentaries about everything. But uh, one documentary I saw about musicals stated that uh, it was South Pacific, uh, I think her name's Kathy Rigby, the actress the, from Broadway, was in the first production of South Pacific. And 
everybody used solid shampoos prior to that, but Prell had just been developed and it was the first liquid shampoo. And there's that song, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. So Prell sent her a bottle of Prell shampoo so she could get on stage and actually wash her hair in that number. And after that, everybody started using liquid detergent on their hair, which is essentially what liquid shampoo is. And I remember that from being eight years old. <laughs> I love that. I had, I've never heard that story. I love that. And, and it, you know, I'm not surprised at all. I feel like so many of our, so many of our life choices are rooted in capitalism. Right. <laughs> and, we, and we don't even know it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Um, where can our listeners find you on social media or your website? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram uh, as at written culture. And also uh, I have the website www.writtenculture.com. Um, and from there, you can find the link to my blog and you're able to message me there or through uh, DMs and Instagram. That's great. It's a beautiful Instagram feed, by the way. I know. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. I have no, I have no training in art whatsoever. <laughs> uh, we become experts in so many little things. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thanks again, Angela. I really appreciate being asked to be on a podcast. This is my first one. And also, I wish you luck in this podcast venture. Thank you. There you have it. So thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you like this podcast, I would really appreciate some feedback. So please leave me a review or simply head on over to Apple Podcasts and give me five stars. Also, please subscribe and make sure to share it to help us reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. If you are a woman who was recently diagnosed with ADHD and would like to be interviewed as a guest, I would love to interview you. So please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find out all the show notes from this episode at womenandadhd.com slash episodes. And you can follow this podcast on Instagram at womenandadhd. You can also find out more about me and my anti-diet health coaching program at worthitwithkatie.com. Make sure to sign up for your free copy of my Thank You Body Technique. This simple primer teaches you how to reset your mood and improve your relationship with your body quickly and easily through breathing, yoga, and even aromatherapy. Okay, I will see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then. <laughs>